This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Season's greetings, everyone. If you do a weekly radio show, then once a year, you will produce a show during the week surrounding Christmas. And this would be that show this year. Since this is the year we would celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, the Saturnalia, and and some of the more recent additions to the holiday season, like Kwanzaa and, I guess you could say, Festivus. So in keeping with the season, we're going to try to be on the lighter side today. And what better way to do that than to start this program with a clip from the most famous Christmas song of all time. No, not that Christmas song, Mr. McMillan. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Treetops listen and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. Yes, it's true. White Christmas, especially a song by Bing Crosby, is a holiday tradition beloved by millions. It is also, are you ready for it? The most popular song ever. Yes, over the years, White Christmas has racked up sales of 50 million, making it the biggest selling single of all time. And the story behind it's a bit interesting, so I think we'll delve into it. The song was written by Izzy Bellin. He was a former singing waiter from New York's Chinatown and an immigrant to the U.S. from Belarus. He is better known to us, of course, as Irving Berlin. Yes, the legendary Irving Berlin, a Jewish immigrant from Belarus slash Russia, who couldn't read or write musical notation, managed to compose over 1,000 songs, which are considered the very foundation of our American songbook. Berlin had more than 400 hits, and if God forbid you're unfamiliar with his work, they include Cheek to Cheek, Easter Parade, No Business Like Show Business, and God Bless America. As mentioned, because Irving Berlin could not read or write music, he could only bash out a melody on the black keys of a piano. He had a musical secretary then write the notes down. When writing a song, he generally would hum the tune and dictate the words. A number of years after he wrote White Christmas, Berlin was asked how a member of the Jewish faith could write such a song. He replied, I wrote it as an American. Its origins are rather sad. According to Jody Rosen, author of White Christmas, the story of an American song, Berlin's three-week-old son had died on Christmas Day. Every year, he and his wife would visit their baby's grave. It seems the origins of the song go back to that event. White Christmas is one of Irving Berlin's simplest songs. It has just 54 words and 67 now-classic notes. Linda Emmett, the second of Berlin's three daughters, said... For my father, Christmas was an American holiday more than anything else. It was certainly nothing he was exposed to, to say the least, in Russia. 
In the Berlin household, she said Christmas was the typical secular Christmas with a Christmas tree, Christmas stockings, and a turkey and plum pudding, and a general cheery atmosphere. It was something that we as children looked forward to tremendously. Something Berlin was inspired to write White Christmas during a stay in Beverly Hills in the late 30s while he was working on a movie and homesick for his family. But it was a couple of years later, over the Christmas season of 1940 into 1941, that Berlin apparently took this half-finished song out of what he called his song trunk. Over the Christmas season that year, Berlin rewrote the lyric. After that, he reportedly walked into his song publishing offices and announced to his musical secretary, I've just written a new song. Not only is it the best song I've ever written, it's the best song anybody's ever written. White Christmas premiered on radio at Christmas time in 1941, just 18 days after Pearl Harbor. That was on the Kraft Music Hall radio show. The host, Bing Crosby, crooned the carol, and it didn't attract much attention. It subsequently appeared in the movie Holiday Inn, starring Bing Crosby, Rosemary Clooney, Vera Ellen, and the always annoying Danny Kay. Even at that point, it was not intended to be the main song in that film. It nevertheless, more or less, became the centerpiece of the effort. Critics, however, still didn't take much note of it. But when Armed Forces Radio began to play the song overseas for American troops who found its images of a kind Christmas on the home front appealing, well, that's when it took off. 1942 was the first winter that American troops had spent overseas. So images of a snowy American New england type Christmas really spoke to the longing, nostalgia, and homesickness of the troops. So popular was it that the original recording, which they apparently knocked off in 18 minutes, was so worn out that by 1947, Bing Crosby recorded another version of it, which is the one we are familiar with today. Worked so well for Bing Crosby that in 1944, it became the title track of another Christmas musical titled, not surprisingly, White Christmas. And man, has it gotten covered since. Artists covering it range from Bob Marley to Willie Nelson to Bob Dylan to U2 to Elvis Presley. Apparently, Irving Berlin didn't care for Elvis's version. He fought a legal campaign to get it banned. Being himself had some mixed feelings about the song because it was constantly requested by troops during his USO appearances. Said Crosby, I hesitated about doing it because invariably it caused such a nostalgic yearning among the men that it made them sad. Heaven knows I didn't come that far to make them sad. For this reason, several times I tried to cut it out of the show, but these guys just hollered for it. Now, over the years, a lot of people have tried to step up and challenge uh, (laughs) uh, White Christmas's crown as the, the king of Christmas classics. And although I'm tempted to mention some of the, let's say, lesser favorites among Christmas tunes, I don't want to do so. Because to even bring some of these up makes me rather sad. Not all of them are bad. Ella Fitzgerald's Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow. It's a pretty good, pretty good song. It's hard to dislike Andy Williams's It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. A song that's come closest to rivaling White Christmas is another well-known classic which begins Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, Mel Torme's The Christmas Song. We'll have more to say about that at the end of the segment. Mel's version of it, by the way, was not the original hit. Against the wishes of his record company, Nat King Cole recorded his version of the Christmas song in 1946. And by the way, it's been covered by well over 100 artists, including Paul McCartney, Diana Ross, and Stevie Wonder. And you know, even though that classic song does have some roots in, you know, 
a sad tragedy in, in Irving Berlin's life and <laughs> certainly did no doubt make troops wistful and nostalgic and a bit sad when Bing Crosby performed it for them. I personally feel it's, you know, it's, it's hard to not feel good when you hear Bing Crosby's smooth tones singing. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas with every Christmas card. And since we're talking about songs that I, I think make you feel pretty good, I want to insert at this point one that is decidedly not a Christmas favorite, but one which yours truly got reacquainted with some months back. One of the stations, I guess it was probably on Sirius Satellite, was uh, and it, undoubtedly it was the Beatles channel, was, was playing a list of the public's top 100 Beatles tunes. But the one that really struck me the hardest in terms of like, wow, I forgot how good this was, was one that neither composer Paul McCartney nor John Lennon thought terribly highly of. I think they were underestimating themselves. Mr. McMillan? It's an easy song to underestimate. Paul McCartney appears to be a little bit off-key. But doggone it, if you crank it up and listen to the bass, I think you have to agree, it's mighty good. Hold Me Tight comes off the Beatles album with the Beatles, and we should celebrate, I think, today the passing of a great photographer, Robert Freeman, who created the now-classic cover for that album. Robert Freeman certainly did help the world Meet the Beatles. Back in 1963, the up-and-coming British photographer was hired to shoot the cover of the band's imminent second LP. Robert Freeman met with the Beatles mid-tour in their seaside town of Bournemouth, and since the photographer was needed urgently, I had to improve a studio situation, he later recalled. He posed the group wearing their trademark black turtleneck sweaters in front of a dark curtain in a hotel dining room. Light streaming from a side window left their unsmiling faces half-cloaked in shadow. The stark black-and-white image cut against expectations, hinting that John, Paul, George, and Ringo were perhaps more than a gauzy pop sensation. Freeman said of the shoot, there was no makeup, hairdresser, or stylist, just myself, the Beatles, and a camera. Freeman would go on to be the Beatles' official photographer in all but name. He shot the covers for A Hard Day's Night, Beatles for Sale, Help, and Rubber Soul. The iconic art for that came about by accident. After photographing the band in John Lennon's garden, Freeman projected the best shot onto an LP-sized card propped on a table. When the card slipped, it gave the picture a stretched look, which the Beatles thought was perfect for an album titled Rubber Soul. Anyway, I'm looking at the, the playlist for with the Beatles, and I'm sort of struck by the fact that um, a lot of the tunes they did on it were covers, like Please Mr. Postman and the, the pretty hard-to-dislike Money, That's What I Want. But it also included You Really Got a Hold on Me by Smokey Robinson and Roll Over Beethoven by Chuck Berry. And perhaps most surprisingly, Meredith Wilson's Till There Was You off of The Music Man. Undeniably a pretty good tune, and the Beatles did it well. All right, at this point, I'd like to take a, a break from our historical review of the music associated with Christmas and instead just take a look at the history of what led to Christmas. And yes, I realize that the Christmas story comes from two of the four Gospels. In years past, we've taken it upon ourselves to, to probe 
the story of Christmas just a little. We have in the past pointed out that among the oddities of the story is the fact that, well, the birth of Jesus could could not very well have taken place in December, since according to the Bible, the Gospels anyway, uh, the event took place when the shepherds were laying with their flocks in the fields, which puts it in the spring. I guess today we can leave that mystery for others to ponder. Well, not completely. Anyway, it turns out that the celebration of Christmas clearly seems to have its roots in the Roman festival of the Saturnalia. If you're unfamiliar with it, well, we're going to fix that. But if you are unfamiliar with it, it was an ancient Roman festival held in honor of the god Saturn. It was held on the 17th of December of the old Julian calendar and later expanded with festivities through the 23rd of December. It is not a coincidence that these dates coincide pretty closely with the winter solstice. The holiday was celebrated with a sacrifice at the Temple of Saturn in the Roman Forum, which, to my surprise, is partially still standing. At least several columns of it are. There was a public banquet, followed by private gift-giving, continual partying, and a carnival-like atmosphere that overturned Roman social norms. Gambling was temporarily permitted. Masters provided table service for their slaves. A common custom was the election of a king of Saturnalia. Gifts were exchanged. They were usually gag gifts or small figurines made of wax or pottery. Now, in Roman mythology, Saturn was an agricultural deity, which sort of makes sense that you might want to celebrate when the days stop getting shorter and start getting longer again. That's certainly a partial explanation for the timing of the festival. Uh, Although it's probably the best known of Roman holidays, Saturnalia as a whole is not described from beginning to end in any single ancient source. Modern understanding of it is pieced together from several accounts dealing with various aspects of the holiday. Candles were often lit at this time in reference to a renewal of sunlight and the coming of a new year. It was a popular holiday continuing into the 3rd and 4th centuries A.D., And as the Roman Empire at that point came under Christian rule, many of its customs were recast or at least influenced the seasonal celebrations surrounding Christmas and the New Year. Besides lighting of candles, the Saturnalia was characterized by role reversals and behavioral license. Slaves were treated to a banquet of the kind usually enjoyed by their masters. Ancient sources differ on the circumstances. Some suggest that master and slave dined together. Others indicate that slaves feasted first or that the masters actually served them their food. The Roman toga, the characteristic garment of the male Roman citizen, was set aside at this time in favor of a Greek synthesis, colorful dinner clothes, otherwise considered in poor taste for daytime wear. Romans of normal citizen status went bareheaded, but during the Saturnalia, they donned the pileus, a conical felt cap that was the usual mark of the freedmen. Slaves, who were ordinarily not entitled to wear the pileus, wore it as well, so that everyone was pileated without distinction. Unlike several Roman religious festivals, which were particular to cult sites in the city, the prolonged seasonal celebration of the Saturnalia could be held anywhere in the empire. And, of course, it continued as a secular celebration long after it was removed from the official calendar. Now, The actual date of Jesus' birth is unknown. Now, in the 4th century AD, Pope Julius I formalized that the date of Jesus' birth should be celebrated on the 25th of December, which is about the same time as the Saturnalia celebrations. He related that part of the reason that he chose this date 
may have been because he was trying to create a Christian alternative to Saturnalia. Pope Julius may have thought he could attract more converts to Christianity by allowing them to continue to celebrate on the same day. And he may have been influenced by the idea that Jesus had died on the anniversary of his conception, because Jesus died during Passover, and in the 3rd century AD, Passover was celebrated on March 25th. The Pope may have assumed that Jesus' birthday must have come nine months later, on 25th of December. As a result of this close proximity of dates, many Christians in Western Europe continue to celebrate traditional Saturnalia customs in association with Christmas and the surrounding holidays. Like Saturnalia, Christmas, during the Middle Ages at any rate, was a time of ruckus, drinking, gambling, and overeating. At which point I stop and say, during the Middle Ages, that sounds like Christmas today. But it turns out that is a rather recent reinvention. During the late medieval period and early Renaissance, many towns in England elected a Lord of Misrule at Christmas time to provide over the Feast of Fools. This custom was sometimes associated with the Twelfth Night. A common tradition in Western Europe was to drop a bean, coin, or other small token into a cake or pudding, and whoever found the object would become king or queen of the bean. During the Protestant Reformation, reformers sought to revise or even completely abolish such practices which they regarded as popish. Their efforts were largely successful, and in many places these customs died out completely. The Puritans banned the Lord of Misrule in England, and the custom was largely forgotten thereafter, though the bean in the pudding survived as a tradition of a small gift to the one finding a single almond hidden in the traditional Christmas porridge in Scandinavia. Christmas porridge. It was in the middle of the 19th century that some of the old ceremonies, such as gift-giving, were revived in English-speaking countries as a part of a widespread Christmas revival. During this revival, authors such as Charles Dickens sought to reform the, quote, conscience of Christmas, unquote, and turn the formerly riotous holiday into a family-friendly occasion. But of course, vestiges of the Saturnalia festivals may still be preserved in some of the traditions which we now associate with Christmas. The custom of gift giving at Christmas time resembles the Roman tradition of giving those small figurines made of wax or pottery. The lighting of Advent candles resembles the Roman tradition of lighting torches. And it goes without saying that Saturnalia and Christmas both share associations with eating, drinking, singing, and dancing and as noted previously, raising a ruckus. And now, of course, Christmas isn't the only holiday in this holiday season. What was once a minor holiday for observant Jews, Hanukkah, has in the U.S. at any rate become a major celebration. Hanukkah commemorates the rededication of the Second Temple of Jerusalem after a successful Jewish revolt against the Seleucid Empire in about 160 B.C. The Seleucid dynasty was founded by one of Alexander's great generals after the Macedonian Empire got divided up. Alexander's conquest and what followed spread Greek ideas, culture, and religion throughout the ancient Middle East. Jews were initially granted a measure of autonomy within that empire, but in 175 BC, King Antiochus IV instituted a program of forced assimilation in Judea, outlawing the Jewish faith and desecrating the temple by sacrificing a pig and erecting an altar to Zeus. After years-long campaign of guerrilla warfare, Jewish rebels known as the Maccabees defeated the Seleucids. Tradition holds that when the Maccabees recaptured the temple, there was only one vial of undefiled olive oil, 
which would have been enough to light the seven lamps of the Temple Menorah for just one day. But miraculously, the lamps kept burning for eight days, enough time to press and consecrate more oil, which is why Hanukkah is celebrated for eight days and is called the Festival of Lights. For most of Jewish history, Hanukkah was considered a rather minor festival, and the Hanukkah story does not appear in the Hebrew Bible. The story of the miracle of the lights first appears in writing 600 years after the Maccabean Revolt. Some historians believe that Hanukkah celebrations evolved alongside other winter solstice festivals, which incorporated fire and light amid the darkest days of the year. Hanukkah began to take on more importance in the mid to late 19th century amid large-scale Jewish immigration to the United States. Many Jewish immigrants embraced American customs as a way of fitting in, which included Christmas. Well, so it was for Irving Berlin. The Week magazine notes that during the Victorian era, Christmas had begun its transformation into the highly commercialized holiday which we know today. Alarmed by the number of Jewish families who were decorating Christmas trees and waiting for Santa Claus, religious leaders started to play up Hanukkah as an alternative. Cincinnati-based Reform rabbis Max Lilenthal and Isaac Wise are credited with popularizing Hanukkah by developing special Hanukkah synagogue services focusing on children with candlelighting songs and gift-giving. And since then, Hanukkah has become one of the most widely observed Jewish holidays in the United States, and reportedly has also been growing in popularity in Israel, though in Israel it is not a national holiday. And at this point in time, although I'm not a fan, <laughs> I think we do need to hear from Adam Sandler, who wrote a song about Hanukkah. Put on your yarmulke, here comes Hanukkah. So much Hanukkah to celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a festival of lights. Instead of one day of presents, we have eight. Crazy nights when you feel like the only kid in town without a Christmas tree. Here's a list of people who are Jewish, just like you and me. David Lee Roth lights the menorah. So do James Conkirk Douglas and the late Dinosaurus. Guess who eats together at the Carnegie Deli? Bowser from Shanana and Arthur Fonzarelli. Paul Newman's half Jewish, Goldie Hawn's half too. Put them together. What a fine looking Jew. You don't need deck the halls or jingle bell rock. Cause you can spin a dreidel with Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock, both Jewish. Put on your yarmulke, it's time for Hanukkah. The owner of the Seattle Supersonicas celebrates Hanukkah. O.J. Simpson, not a Jew. <laughs> But guess who is? Hall of Famer Rod Carew. He converted. We got Ann Landers and her sister, dear Abby. Harrison Ford's a quarter Jewish, not too shabby. And we have one final item also related to the music of Christmas, 
which we've aired before, but doggone it, we need to air again. This comes from what Radio Parallax would have to describe as our favorite blog, that of Mark Evanier. It's titled, News From Me. The story was originally published in Comic Buyer's Guide in July of 1999. The scene is Farmer's Market, tourist mecca of Los Angeles. It's located but yards from CBS Television City in Hollywood, which of course is not in Hollywood, but at least is very close. Farmer's Market is a quaint collection of bungalow stores, produce stalls, and little stands where one can buy darn near anything edible. You buy your pizza slice or sandwich or Chinese food or whatever at one of upteen counters, then carry it to a tray to an open-air table. During summer on weekends, the place is full of families and tourists. But this was a winter weekday, not long before Christmas, and the crowd was mostly older folks dawdling over coffee and Danish. For me, it's a good place to get out of the house and grab something to eat. I arrived, headed to my favorite barbecue stand, and en route noticed Mel Torme was sitting at one of the tables. Mel Torme, my favorite singer, just sitting there sipping a cup of coffee, munching on an English muffin, reading the New York Times. Mel Torme. I never met Mel. Alas, I still haven't, and now I never will. He looked like he was engrossed in the paper, so I didn't stop and say, Excuse me, I just wanted to tell you how much I've enjoyed all your records. I wish I had. Instead, I continued over to the barbecue place, got myself a chicken sandwich, and settled down at a table to consume it. I was about halfway through when four Christmas carolers strolled by singing Let It Snow a cappella. These were young adults with strong, fine voices, and they were clad in splendid Victorian garb. The market had hired them, I assume, to stroll about and sing for the diners. A little touch of the holidays. Let It Snow concluded not far from me to polite applause from all with an earshot. I waved the leader of the chorale over and directed his attention to Mr. Torme, sitting about 20 yards away. That's Mel Torme down there. Do you know who he is? The singer was about 25, so it didn't horrify me that he said, No. I asked, Do you know the Christmas song? Again, No. I said, The one that starts, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire? Oh, yes, the caroler tripped. Is that what it's called, the Christmas song? That's the name, I explained, and that man wrote it. The singer thanked me, returned to his group for a brief huddle, and then strolled down towards Mel Torme. I ditched the rest of my sandwich and followed. As they reached their quarry, they began singing Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire directly to him. A big smile formed on Mel Torme's face, and it wasn't the only one around. Most of those sitting at nearby tables knew who he was, and many seemed aware of the significance of singing that song to him. As the choir reached the last chorus or two, Mel got to his feet and made a little gesture that meant, let me sing one chorus solo. The carolers looked a bit uncomfortable. I bet at least a couple were thinking, oh no, the little fat guy wants to sing. But they stopped, and the little fat guy started to sing. And of course, out came this beautiful, melodic, perfectly on-pitch voice. The look on the face of the singer I'd briefed was amazed at first, then properly impressed. On Mr. Torme's signal, they'd all joined in on the final lines, although it's been said many times, many ways. Big smiles all around. Said Mark Evanier, I've witnessed a number of thrilling show business moments. Those incidents, far and few, where the little hairs on your epidermis snap to attention and tingle with joy. Usually, these occur on a screen or a stage. I hadn't expected to experience one next to a falafel stand, but I did. El Tormay thanked the harmonizers for the serenade. One of the women said, you really wrote that? He nodded. 
a wonderful songwriter named Bob Wells and I wrote it. And get this, we did it on the hottest day of the year in July. It was a way to cool down. Then the gent I'd briefed said, you know, you're not a bad singer. He actually said that to Mel Torme. Mel chuckled, realizing that these four young folk hadn't the velvet, foggiest notion of who he was, above and beyond the fact that he'd worked on that classical record. Well, he said, I've actually made a few records in my day. Really? The other man asked. How many? Torme smiled and said, 90. Anyway, Mark Evanier closes with, No recording exists of that chorus that Mel Torme sang for the other diners at the farmer's market. But if you never believe another word I write, trust me on this. It was perfect. Absolutely perfect. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Yuletide carols being sung by a choir. And folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe. Help to make the season bright Tiny little tots With their eyes all aglow Will find it hard to sleep tonight 